So how does Christ treat his bride? Well, let's talk about that next here on Truth For Today. Here in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul gives us a marvelous view into the love that Christ has for his bride and how he treats her. And then he goes on to say that this is the example that we as men are to have when we go to treat our wives in much the same way. And that's what we're focusing on here in Ephesians. Welcome to Truth For Today with Pastor Phil Howard, the ministry of Valley Bible Church in Hercules. Won't you join us today as we look together at God's amazing word, how Christ treats his bride. Here now with today's program, Pastor Phil Howard. Look at this beautifying process he puts it through. He says, this is the purpose of my love for my bride. I've seen some men, they made their wives ugly. They were a pretty gal before they got married, and marriage has made her sister haggard. Not Merle's wife, just Sister Haggard. Uh, because the guy's stripping her of all of her beauty. I see that in a lot of marriages. If your wife is getting uglier, guess whose fault it could be? You, the husband. Because she is the glory of the husband. She is a compliment. Your wife ought to be looking better because she met you. Give her that Visa card. Got to enable you some way. I don't know how, but he, uh, let's say uh, he said, uh, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now notice the purpose of his love is to beautify her. And the first thing he does is make her holy. Now, I love the word holy, but holy sounds kind of drab. Holy, I want a holy woman. Well, what does that mean? Well, let me say something about holiness. Uh, it has several connotations. Its basic meaning is set apart unto, set apart. And, and we use it, and it is used many times, of set apart from evil. And so it means holiness of life. Our word sanctification comes from it. But there's something about the word holy that means to be set apart as unique. And that's what was happening in Isaiah 6. God says, holy, holy, holy. Well, we're not just saying God is morally pure. He is that. But it's the idea he's set apart. He's set apart. He's set apart. He's in a league all of his own. There's no rivals. No one's like what we're seeing as the seraphim in the temple. He's unique, unique, unique is what you could say. He's set apart set apart. He's above everything. He's set apart. And guess what the love of Christ does to his bride? He sets us apart as special and unique. He loves his bride like he loves no other person. If you're not in the bride of Christ, he doesn't love you to the depth in the same way as he loves his bride. And he's saying, I've set you apart in a special category in my affection and in my love. Just as a man, by the time he settles down to marry, he can date a lot of girls 
and there can be millions of girls, but finally his heart focuses on one. And in his heart, there are millions of women on the earth, but there's one woman set apart from my heart that when I hear her name, see her face, hear her voice, there is a unique thrill that goes through my heart even after 39 years of being with her. She is wholly set apart in my affections because I'm a one-woman man. Out of all of the women of the earth, God had picked one woman for me for life. And Christ is saying, I have set you apart as my special object of affections for time and eternity. We will never be parted. I will let you sit on my right hand on my throne when I rule over the nations. You'll be there with me in the marriage supper of the Lamb. You'll be there when I make a new heaven and a new earth. And you won't be just some bum that fell into heaven. You will be known as the Lamb's wife. You've been set apart from all the sins and all the nations into this unique, unique, special privilege category. I am the bride of Christ. I've come under his special romantic affections. It's so deep. I says, ask God, don't let me weep so much I can't get through it. It's so magnificent to be loved by God this way. You know, uh, one of the cruel things I witnessed as a boy growing up in Richmond and San Pablo was how boys did girls. And we had about three girls on the block that all the guys, had, if they couldn't get a, the date they wanted, Susie Q on Friday night, anybody could make out with her. Because she wasn't that pretty anyway. She was just there for desperation. But you'd never take her to the senior ball you never take her to a dance because she didn't make you look good. You wanted the pretty knockout for that. And what Christ is saying is, you're not a Friday night desperate date for me. I'm going to introduce you to my father. And I'm going to reign through eternity with you. I've put you in a special category. I'm not going to use you, church. I'm going to make you beautiful. He goes on to say that uh, his love makes her clean by means of his word. Uh, he uses his word to cleanse the bride. Now, that means when he found you, you weren't clean. <laughs> when he found you, you might have been singing at the bar. You might have been sleeping at the house of the rising sun. Uh, you were into all kinds of sins. For a while we were yet without Christ in due time, he died for us. While we were still sinners, still ungodly, while we were at enmity, while we hated God in our heart, he started courting us when we were dirty, filthy, and ugly with sin is when he started courting me. His spirit began to woo me while I resisted him, while I fled from him. While I learned to reject him, he pursued and pursued and pursued. He would not give up the pursuit. 
I told him to leave me alone a thousand times and I could not get God to bug off. And why would he ever need me? He will have millions in heaven without me. He decided I would get a bath. And there's two backgrounds to this word. One is the Jewish bridal bath that they took that day of the marriage. And the Gentiles did it too, but it was big in Jewish custom. And so some feel that the language is being used. I gave you the bridal bath. I was the one that bathed you and got you clean enough for the wedding. Of course, the mother and the sisters do that in a physical realm. But he said, I was the one, the only one that can make you clean enough to be fit to be my bride. And the soap was my blood. The only agent that could wipe away the stain in you required my sacrificial death for you. And another picture, many believes it reaches back to Ezekiel 16, and you must turn there with me. This is one of the most magnificent chapters in the Bible. Uh, please turn there. And I'm supposed to be done in five minutes, but too bad, I'm going on. I just, I gotta go a little bit more so we may go over today. We've been sitting through sermons where we listen for an hour and a half. So I think if MacArthur can do it, I'm doing it. So get ready. But it was two preachers, I have to admit. <laughs> they had two teams. Uh, Ezekiel 16. Listen to this. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in clothes. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field for on the day you were born, you were despised. This is when I found you, Jerusalem. Then I passed by and I saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew up and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew uh, you who were naked and bare. Later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointment on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put leather sandals on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. You see, he's making her beautiful. He found her in blood. But he said, I'm going to beautify you, Israel. I put a ring on your nose, earrings on your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was fine flour, honey and olive oil. 
you became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty because the splendor I had given you made you your beauty perfect, declares the sovereign Lord. Who made her beautiful? Her maker, her God. What did she do with her beauty? But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places where you carried on your prostitution. He's referring to idolatry, but he likens it to breaking this intimate relationship. Some things should not happen nor should they ever occur. You also took the fine jewelry I gave you, the jewelry made of my gold and silver, and you made for yourself male idols and engaged in prostitution with them. And you took your embroidered clothes to put on them, and you offered my oil and incense before them. Verse 20, you offered your sons to these idols. You slaughtered my children and sacrificed them. In all your detestable practices and your prostitution, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, kicking about in your blood. And he goes on to say, you slept with all the nations. You played the whore. It's this moving picture that God says, I found you among the nations as a newborn child ready to die, despicable, dirty with the blood of afterbirth. But I invested my love in you. I cleaned you up. I bathed you. I made you beautiful. I gave you your garments, your jewelry. I waited for puberty, and as your breast developed and you got through that womanhood stage of life, you became beautiful. And I thought, oh, you'll surely reciprocate my love. A little child didn't know how to love, but you're old enough to know now that I am your maker, your husband, and you're beautiful. I've made you beautiful. Surely you'll love me back. And instead, they took the beauty God bestowed and gave it to everyone but God. Became idolatrous in his most graphic, shocking languages. You played the prostitute. You sold yourself to those who had no investment in you. You gave yourself under every idol tree. You sacrificed your children. You loved you were, he said, you don't pay, a prostitute doesn't pay the man. The man pays the prostitute, but you paid for your lovers to come to you. It was Assyria, Babylon, Egypt. Why did you not come to the one who beautified you? And he's reminding these Ephesians, I make the bride beautiful. All I want you to do is to love me back. I didn't invest all of this beauty work, my death, my service, my love for you to give it to another. While you not love your God who makes the bride beautiful. I think it's the greatest heartbreak for me as a pastor is to see the goodness and love of God shunned by a professing believer 
and all of a sudden the home is breaking up or they've gone back to former sins. Or you see them worship with such a lukewarm, cold heart. And I ask, oh, why? Why is it so hard to love the source of all good things and the source of all wonderful things and the source of all the beauty you have? Why is it hard to love this God back? Is he that ugly? Is he that bad? Is he that terrible? Oh, no, we are the wicked ones that can love lesser things and choke him out of our lives. When he gave us children, gave us parents, gave us salvation, gave us his son, gave us prosperity, gave us health. Oh, it ought to be easy to love him back. That's what he saved you for. Not your job, not your ego, not your mistress, not your sin. He saved you to love him back. He wants a bride that loves him enough to say, there's no other husband I'll ever give myself to. I have found all I need in Jesus. He goes on to say, and I'll just, I'll just stop. I'm not done, but I'll stop. He washed her with the word to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Uh, this word here, stain, means spot. Uh, it's probably, you know, moles because it's used of physical beauty. Uh, places in your complexion that are dark or that is a distraction. Birthmarks. Things that are physical distractions on the normal realm. He said, in my bride, I found her dirty, but I've done such a job in her. I'll remove everything in her spiritual makeup that is distracting and believe it or not, when he says he'll remove the wrinkle, I thought it was the wrinkle of a garment. But as I studied, it means the wrinkles of the face. That's how it's really used. And he says, I'm going to take you, you know, sin can leave you looking pretty bad. And he's saying, I'll take you that you may have been wrinkled from your sin. And the emphasis is anything that takes away from beauty, I'm going to remove it. And I speak the word and all the wrinkles of the, you won't even need Botox. I'll speak the word and in one magic way, God just take his divine iron and iron your face. So that by the time we show up on wedding day, when I see him face to face, Look on, Satan. Look on, angels. You won't find a stain or a wrinkle in me because I am in love with a beautifier. He has removed everything ugly. And I'm even going to have this old nature of mine extracted like a bad tooth as I'm raptured. And I'm going to throw it to the ground and it won't bother me for all eternity. We'll leave it behind. What a day that will be. No more lust. 
No more temptation. No more, you know, grouchiness. No more all that stuff. Permanently fixed. Be the same. We're going to have to start getting used to each other. Some of you folks, I just want to see you on Thursday. Because you're a crank up to that day. But then you'll be permanently good. Just like your dear precious pastor. I heard no amen. I knew you were thinking about me. No blemish. Uh, you know, we used to sing a chorus. Let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. All his wonderful passion and purity. O thou spirit divine, all my nature refine till the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. I hear Jude, my life's verse, say, he's able to keep you from falling and to present you without fault or blemish in his presence when you see him. Think of it, dear bride. Your wedding day, he's going to present you in all the radiance of his glorious beautification program. And as angels observe and the father observes his son taking the lamb's wife, the bride, the church. Meeting him is no fear to me. I'll never look better than on that wedding day. Because all of my dispositional ugliness, all of the distractions, if you lost sight physically, if you got a hip replaced, if you got arthritis, you've got old age, and you look at your high school graduation and the wrinkles of your age, you said, I could never imagine I looked like that. You wait. When he gets through with you, the bride, there'll be no wrinkles on that day. You'll stand before him in all the moral perfections because we will be like Christ. I would just say this, the love of Christ towards his bride takes what often looks ugly and terrible in this life. Sometimes the church in this world, we look ugly, we look like crooks, we look like a bunch of bimbos, we make some great mistakes. God's people in this pilgrim journey have some days we look ugly with mud all over our face, but he's not through. When he gets through, that sin you've kept falling into, that disposition you kept falling, he's going to work and work. And then he says, we shall see him as he is, for we shall become like he is. What manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should someday look like his son. Christ loves the church. You are the supreme object of his affections. And I must say this in closing. He said this to the church. Hear me. Hear me. Wake up. I will never, no, never cease to love you. Life and death will not end my love. Principalities and powers and demonic hosts will never cut you off from my love. Kindreds and goods may go, but nothing 
nothing will ever be able to separate you from my love for you. Romans 8, 37 through 39. If you've read the context, he tells you why that love cannot be cut off. I'm interceding for you. I died for you. I paid for you. I've done everything that permanentizes my love for you. I will never cease to love you. I end with Romans 5, 5. For God has shed abroad in our hearts the love of God by the Holy Spirit, which he has given to us. You know what that verse is saying? God, on your worst day, wants you to know that the Holy Spirit is there to remind you that his love for you has been gushed abroad on your heart. And even on days when I have sinned, days when I feel cranky, feel quasi-carnal, the one thing that is the constant in my heart, two things. I constantly hear the Spirit saying, you're a son, you're a son, you're a son. And Galatians says, present tense, he cries it. Abba, Father, Abba, Father. The Spirit does it. Even when I don't want a fellowship, even when I'm not in the right mood, even when I'm not praying, the Spirit is shouting that, you're a son, you're a son, you're a son. And Romans 5, 5, on my worst day, there are some days I could say, I barely love God a little. But every day since 1958, I've heard him say, I will never cease loving you, for I never divorced this bride. It is permanent. It is sealed. You will be delivered in all the radiance of a bride. 